I want us to return to the Gospel of Luke. And so if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, and we're going to begin reading in verse 26 in just a moment. Luke, chapter 23, uh, beginning in verse 26, reading through verse 43, as we begin to uh, think about, we begin to anticipate, we begin to celebrate uh, the great uh, realities of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, on the cross at Calvary and his victorious uh, resurrection uh, from the dead. One of my favorite Christian hymns begins with these words, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. The song goes on into the third stanza with these words. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies a parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Now, I would add to that confession that no amount of artists' paints, musicians' chords and lyrics, nor actors' skills could fully convey the complexity not only of the love of God, but the complexity of the very glory of God revealed in the cross at Calvary. In the cross of the Lord Jesus, we see on full display the entirety of the character and the attributes of God. We see the love of God for both His Son and the sinners that He would save in bold and graphic display. We see also God's wrath, holiness, and justice magnified along with His power, sovereign authority, mercy, grace, wisdom, knowledge, and more in the drama at Golgotha. We observe the starkest of contrasts at the cross of Calvary. There is an impenetrable mystery that unfolded on that day where men and Satan with his demons descended to the darkest depths of their depravity, while at the same time and in the same activities, God displayed his infinite and glorious holiness that according to his set plan and foreknowledge, his son would be crucified. At Calvary, time and space collides with eternity. The holy plan of redemption conceived in eternity past was enacted by and through the wicked plans and actions of evil men. In their evil scheming, the, those men seem to have triumphed over the sinless Son of God by putting him to death. Yet in their diabolical machinations, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit acted to accomplish the divine plan designed before all worlds were created. The pinnacle of man's evil was actually the means through which God ultimately defeated that very evil. The paradox of the most gross miscarriage of justice in human history was the very means through which God's infinitely holy justice was satisfied. On the cross... God displayed His anger toward human rebellion. 
And yet, in that same moment, he demonstrates his love for his sin-marred image bearers. God's anger was fully expressed and exhausted for the elect by the pouring of his wrath designated for them on the perfect beloved son. Man's hatred for God, his suppression of truth, his willful assault upon righteousness, his cultivated and ingrained ignorance was in three-dimensional and full-color display as God displayed and demonstrated his wisdom, power, grace, love, and truth in the offering of the beloved son, the sinless, final, and effective sacrifice for our sins. The son who through all of eternity had known only the perfect approval of the heavenly Father, was forsaken, brutalized, and abandoned for the purpose of faithfully fulfilling the eternal covenant made in the holy councils of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A covenant plan conceived in eternity past, enacted in the course of history, and consummated in eternity future. By fulfilling this covenant, the Son would redeem for himself the promised gift of love, namely a bride, given by the Father and purchased at the price of the Son's blood, willingly poured out to claim His beloved for all of eternity. As another hymn writer expressed, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, has died for me? As we survey Luke's testimony, we are rightly amazed by the splendor of that which was accomplished. It is true that the infinitely just one has in the singular act at Calvary proven that he indeed is the just and the justifier of the ungodly. Theologians, philosophers, scholars, and pastors will never exhaust the wonder and mystery of Calvary. At times, it does seem appropriate that as we gaze at the all-encompassing testimony to the marvel of God's grace, that we can only repeat the singular cry of the dying thief, Jesus, remember me. Read with me, if you will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who are mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen? when it is dry. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, 
This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, for it is your inspired and errant and infallible testimony uh, to us, given to us that we may know your greatness. May we know your salvation. May we know the depth and the splendor of your love. God, we thank you for the sacrifice that was offered at Calvary and for the fact that you, according to your plan and by your spirit, you have applied that sacrifice to our lives and salvation. Lord, we would pray that there's one sitting here today, that one that would hear this message, that you would so work in their hearts that they indeed would believe. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Uh, May we honor you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In biblical studies, we rightly stress context. That is, the context in which the author wrote. Then the broader historical context, that is, the the breadth of, of history, how the story fits into that context. And even the cultural context in which the author wrote, the manners, the the customs uh, of uh, that day. And we also must take into account the modern context because it's our desire to make a bridge from, again, that, that ancient text to that modern listener. And so as the old uh, real estate cliche goes, that the value of real estate is determined by three things location, location, and location. So it is the meaning of a biblical text is also determined by three things. Context, context, and context. Now notice, I left out a fourth context there. Because while we do indeed attempt to bridge between the ancient and the modern to give you understanding, it is not our modern sensibilities. It is not our modern context that defines for us the meaning of the biblical context. Again, it is the Bible that determines our attitude toward our current and contemporary context. And so, how is it that we should understand this climactic episode in the closing chapters of the Gospel of Luke? Do We begin with uh, what's celebrated today on Palm Sunday, the triumphal uh, entry of our Lord Jesus, or do we uh, extend into that final week in which all of the controversies and all of the conflicts uh, come to a a head and and, and come to the resolution proposed of putting Jesus on the cross? Maybe, Maybe we should reach even further back to that first public appearance of Jesus in Galilee, 
approximately three years before his crucifixion, where in announcing his identity and his purpose, he immediately inflamed the jealousy and the anger of his enemies. Perhaps we reach back to the announcement of his unique birth or the promises of the prophets or the covenants made with David or Abraham. Do we go back to the Garden of Eden and the prophecy of a serpent crusher from the seed of the woman? Or do we reach back into the epoch of eternity past to speak of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Those are all good questions, and rightly understood, Calvary is the outworking of everything these prophecies and promises and events were pointing to. Paul wrote in Galatians that of Jesus that he came in the fullness of time. Jesus died on God's schedule. The Greeks under Alexander the Great had introduced the Greek culture and language that would permeate the world of Jesus and the apostles. The Romans had conquered that world and through their roads and their military might had made it possible to safely travel to distant lands through this Roman conquest. The practice of executing the guilty by means of crucifixion had come to be practiced in Jerusalem, thereby providing the means through which the Messiah would die in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Prophecies describing in detail the crucifixion made long before crucifixions were carried out in Palestine. We should ask how a peaceful Jewish peasant could so inflame the hatred of his own people that they would conspire against him and be so adamant in their demands that they could coerce the Roman authorities to execute him, even even though by the standards of both the Jewish and Roman legal systems, there was no guilt found in him. Indeed, In this final week of Jesus' life, the threads of time, place, and eternity are woven together in such a way that God's plan to save lost sinners was put on glorious display in the tapestry of history for the sake of eternity. Let's look beginning in verse 26. We see here a final warning as Jesus weakened by not only the stress of the preceding week, but the stress of the preceding weeks. If we'll remember back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 51, we are told that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, that it was his determination, that it was now his time to enter the place in which he would be crucified for the sake of our redemption. And in even these final hours as he agonized over the betrayals that he would suffer and the brutal treatment he would receive from both the Romans and the Jews. He so agonized over what he was to experience, he is described as when praying in the garden at Gethsemane that he sweated drops of blood due to the anguish that he was in, knowing that for the first time in all of eternity, there was going to be a separation between he and his beloved heavenly father. And instead of knowing the, the approval of his father, he would experience his wrath. 
during that time on the cross. And so as he begins to carry the cross to the place in which he will be hung from it, he is so weakened by the brutal treatment that he had received that he collapses under the weight. And the Romans constricted, they drafted, they forced one known as Simon of Serene to carry uh, the cross for him. Mark's account tells us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, indicating it's quite possibly they were known in the early church. And in fact, the Apostle Paul refers uh, to Rufus and his mother in the closing verses of the book of Romans and describes this mother as one who had been as a mother to him. And so while we don't know much about this man, Simon, we know that it is he that facilitate the tra- facilitated the transportation of the cross to the place in which Jesus would be crucified. And so during this procession to the cross, we are told that he was followed, verse 27, by a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Scholars tell us that actually it was not unusual for there to be professional mourners uh, to follow funeral processions and the, and the like. If not professional, certainly uh, it was well ingrained within the culture that there should be those that would lament uh, death. And so it's hard to know uh, exactly how sincere these uh, women were. Most likely they were as fickle as the larger group that shouted as Jesus entered Jerusalem, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And quite certainly those who shouted Hosanna on that Sunday by that Friday were demanding crucify him, crucify him. And so upon hearing their lament for him, Jesus turns to them and he at least reminds us of what he had predicted in what we call the Olivet Discourse, a a discourse that's recorded in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in which he details the coming judgment, the coming destruction of both the temple and, in fact, the entire city of Jerusalem. And so he says to these women, while it is maybe appropriate that indeed that you would grieve, you should not grieve for me. You should not weep for me. That in fact, your weeping is misplaced and misguided. You should weep for yourselves and your children. Notice how he frames that, that The coming days are going to be characterized by such evil, such devastation, that it's going to be better for a person to be unblessed by having children than to have children to be dealt with and to watch them suffer and die under the devastating destruction that is to come. A a great reversal. It would have been normative in that culture that the very height of the blessing of God was to give to a family children. And Jesus said, those days that are coming, and they're sure, and they're certain, and they're soon, are going to be so great. It would be be a far greater blessing for that normative blessing to be reversed. Better to be barren 
in that day than to have children suffer under the wrath that is indeed to come. A wrath so great that the citizens of Jerusalem will flee to the hills. And rather than suffer this, this onslaught from the Roman army, they would beg, they would pray for the mountains themselves to collapse upon them and to end their misery. That is the day that is coming. And Jesus ends it there with this rather enigmatic statement, verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, whatever the precise meaning is there, certainly Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. That if in this day there's this great suffering and this great lament, then there is a more evil day coming in which it will be appropriate to lament in an even deeper way because the tragedy that is to come is far greater, namely, again, the destruction of their beloved's city. And so Jesus makes his way to that place called Golgotha. Luke calls it the skull. Verse 32, he is crucified between two thieves. We do not know precisely the exact location of where Jesus was crucified. I think in one traditional site, there is a, a Roman Catholic cathedral. Uh, there's another site known as Gordon's Calvary that if you stand off from a distance, you can kind of make out the rock outcroppings that kind of take the shape of a skull. It seems that in the purposes of God, that much of whether it's the birth of Jesus or the baptism of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the tomb of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, all of these different places that actually did occur at a particular geographic location have largely been lost to us. Now, I know if you make a trip into uh, modern Israel, uh, there are people that will tell you this is where this and that happened. But the reality is we do not know precisely where these locations uh, were. And so... Jesus is taken to a particular place. It's identified as the skull. It probably was somewhat of a, a normative place where these executions uh, took place. And he's crucified in the presence alongside of two criminals. One on his right, one on his left. Jesus in the middle. And here we see in verse 34 that Jesus, while hanging on the cross... In great agony, Jesus is interceding for his enemies. Again, a foreshadowing of his current work that indeed he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us even now as we live. And so there on the cross, he intercedes for his enemies and he prays to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I wish we had time to kind of press down on that. That's honestly a bit of a, a mystery to me in that Jesus always prayed according to the will of the Father and every prayer that Jesus ever prayed was always answered in the affirmative. 
So we're all that gathered around that cross and we're all that were guilty of his crucifixion. We're all of them forgiven when we see each and every one of them in heaven one day. It's kind of an interesting question, is it not? And I would say to you that based on what we know about how God worked in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and beyond, we can count at least 8,000 people converted as the gospel of a resurrected Christ is preached, that indeed, many of those that Jesus interceded for were actually saved when they came to hear and believe that gospel. And so Jesus indeed is practicing exactly what he had taught his disciples to do, that is namely, love your enemies as he prayed and interceded for them. Notice here, also in verse 34, in fulfillment of the psalmist prediction, Psalm 22, what we read earlier, that they cast lots for his garments, that they treat trivially uh, the few possessions that the Lord Jesus owned. And as they're doing that, beginning there in verse 35, people stood by, they were watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, mocking him, taunting him, ridiculing him, the one who possessed all power and all authority. Certainly could have come down. I remember uh, one of the old songs we used to say, sing, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free, but he chose to die. He willingly laid down his life. If you'll remember when he talked about himself as that great and good shepherd, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. So indeed, that I may take it back up again. And so the Lord Jesus suffers the, the ridicule, the mocking, the, the taunting uh, from uh, the crowd. In fact, they, they say, if you are indeed God's chosen, one described in Isaiah 42 as one who will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. He certainly looked like anything but the subject of the promise of Isaiah 42. And so again, he is ridiculed, he is mocked, he, he is suffering, and then we're told, a Pilate's inscription that was hung over him. That is, this is the king of the Jews. And I think there's so many levels of meaning that there. Not only was it in some sense a taunt regarding Jesus, but it was a taunt to the people of Jerusalem, to the Jews. This is what I think of you. This is what I think of your king. This is how we treat pretenders to the throne, the king of the Jews. In other words, you're a joke, so is your God, so are your people. We don't believe he's a threat. But keep in mind that should you ever dare to become a threat, this, this is how we will deal with them as well. And so we see that Jesus hangs, he suffers the taunts, the ridicule, the, the offenses of people as they stand around 
and they mock and they jeer. And then we come to verse 39. And we see in this portion the plea of one of the criminals. Look at verse 39. We're told that one of the criminals railed at him. That uh, in the Greek is a word that comes into English as blaspheme. He was leveling all types of terrible insults toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And in and, 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 and this, you can't help but see the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul defined it so well in Philippians 2 that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He wasn't humbling himself to Pilate or the Jews or anyone else. He was humbling himself to the plan agreed upon before all worlds were created. As we think about the the taunts and the mocking and the ridicule and the blasphemy, if you can come down, if you're the Christ, and I, I can't help but think and Children learn how to taunt at early ages, don't they? I can remember on the playgrounds at elementary school playing tag. You can't catch a flea in the coconut tree. Remember that? Catch me if you can. Miss me, miss me. Now you got to kiss me. All of those taunts. And what do they do? They so enrage you to demonstrate that indeed what? Yes, you can. Now, I'm speaking of a time when I was six, seven, eight years old. Now at almost 65, I'm not a whole lot more mature. If you taunt me or challenge me, I'll certainly try to prove you wrong. But we see in Jesus Christ, the one who created everything that is, that in him all of the power in all of the universe and beyond is his. Oh, I know what I would have done. There wouldn't have been ashes left even. But Jesus humbled himself. And yet as one criminal ridiculed our Savior, even blasphemed him. The other criminal speaks out. And we see in verse 40, but the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? In that question to his fellow criminal, he implies that indeed he does fear God and that that other criminal should fear him as well. He implies that he understands that he should fear God because beyond the horror of death on the cross, there is a terror of eternal judgment. And he acknowledges that indeed we are receiving justice. But he understands the man on the middle cross does not deserve the punishment that he is receiving. He says, this man Jesus has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. And yet, unlike us, he's suffering in silence. While we have cursed and threatened and blasphemed, 
He is blessed. There's something in that man that is far different from any man that I have ever known. And we see beginning there in verse 42, the appeal of one dying man to the other. This man, this thief, he was given eyes to see and ears to hear. He recognized that his only hope was in the bloody pulp of a man hanging next to him. He was drawn by the Father to the Son. His heart was open, and his eyes were given sight to see. Jesus had nothing to commend himself. In fulfillment of Isaiah 53, he was marred beyond human semblance. There was nothing to see other than that which God chose to reveal. In his hopelessness, this criminal, he recognized hope incarnate. Jesus sure didn't look like a king as he bled from the crown of thorns. He didn't look like the one who had all power and authority. Yet even while he was dying, he was sustaining all of creation by the power of his word. This man, while he didn't know much, chose to trust in the one who was, whose throat was parched beyond remedy, and yet he was the one who had spoken all creation into existence. The thief couldn't explain why or how that the one whom petty tyrants had condemned would one day judge the world. He could not have fathomed that the one condemned by lies was truth incarnate. Yet despite what he saw with his physical eyes, he came to know that there was only one hope for him in death and for eternity. He trusted the one who hung beside him. He had this sufficient evidence as described in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He saw no splendor, but yet indeed he saw the splendor of the Savior. The thief saw no evidence of kingly authority, no sight of a royal kingdom, no proof of power over death, no testimony to the divinity with his physical eyes, but with the eyes of his heart, mind, and will that had been given by grace, he saw the king of glory as the only one who could save, and he cried out to the one who could save. Now, we're not told much about this thief, only that he was a criminal, but I want you just to imagine for one second. Most likely, he was a Jew. That would have been the most likely person to be executed there in Jerusalem. And maybe what he saw and heard unfold and his response to it wasn't as unexplainable as we might normally assume. What if, when he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, he was reminded of hearing the rabbi speak when he was a young man of Isaiah 52, 53, when of the suffering servant it was written, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, and yet 
this one described, this Jesus was one who poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. I wonder if he heard that word as a youth, and he saw it lived out on the cross beside him. Or when they cast lots for Jesus' garments, maybe he was reminded of the psalmist's prediction in Psalm 22, verses 14 through 18. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, and many in the company of evildoers encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. As those surrounding Jesus scoffed at him, maybe he was reminded of Psalm 22. Verses 6 and 7, by I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Again, they ridicule. They scoff at him. And so while in some way we look to the thief on the cross as quite an anomaly, and he was, and he is, it may be that he is quite the normative paradigm of conversion. In that, if he were a Jew, and as a child he heard uh, the Word of God, that is the imperishable seed, the Word of life, had been long planted, and while dormant in his life for so many years, in his final desperate hours, the Word and the Spirit coalesced to bring life where there was only death, and to bring faith where there had only been previously hostile unbelief. And as we think about and consider that possibility, maybe we're reminded that there are those that we love, that year after year, in years past, they had received the ministry of the Word of God, that that imperishable seed had been sown in their lives. And so it gives us hope to pray that the Word and the Spirit would bring life and light where there's now death and darkness? Would they be born again, not by perishable seed, but by the imperishable seed of the new birth? Namely, the living and the enduring Word of God. The thief having heard and seen and possibly remembered the truth of the Word of God was born again, and he makes this unlikely request. Jesus, remember me. This glorious promise in response to remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' reply to that request is, truly I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Should we strive Stretch, strain, even stress in contemplation of Christ's death. Indeed, we should. It is good to gain understanding and for that understanding to yield a confession such as this. 
I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. There are times when we rightly seek to to grasp the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of God that passes all understanding. But in our understanding, while not yet complete, there bursts in our hearts and our minds the necessity of giving unending praise for the reality of eternal joy breaking into our hearts and in our minds. In our praise, we recognize that no matter the magnitude of our comprehension and explanation of these things in life, we only will begin to scratch the surface of the weight of the glory of God revealed through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, there's a time when we should simply recall that our hope is that in Jesus, Jesus indeed has and does remember us as he has indeed entered his kingdom. I want you to listen to this short clip. If you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What what do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Angel. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, "I never heard of it in my life." And and what about? Uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, "The man on the middle cross said, I can come.'" <laughs> now, now that's the. That is the only answer. We should rightly be amazed by the accomplishment on Calvary. And it is right to plumb the depths and to seek to express the meaning of what was done on that day. We should explain and proclaim the gospel by speaking of all that we understand and seek to understand more of that which we don't understand. This understanding should be our lifelong pursuit. In doing this, we do indeed rightly stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. But like the thief of so long ago, we should always remember that both now and on that day, if indeed the question is asked, why 
are you here? The only answer is and will always be the man on the middle cross said I could come. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for that great truth. We thank you for that man on the middle cross. That man who suffered and died and bled in our place. The great mystery of how one could die for the many. How in that one act of righteousness, he could make those who believe righteous. How we thank you for the great truth of the gospel. And Lord, indeed, we should seek to understand and proclaim that which was accomplished. But it's also a good thing to always remember that we will be in heaven one day simply because that man, that singular, unique man, the Son of God, the man on the middle cross, said, I could come. Amen.